Hello, this is Sam Sutton. And this is Chris Wachowski. And this is Sarah Pringle. And this is, I think, the 11th episode of the PE Hub podcast. We're in the double digit, at <laughs> least. We are climbing up there in the ranks, which is good. Number uh, two for me. Uh, <laughs> number two. I think you've been in more than one before this. Is that Maybe number three. Well, Maybe I like, totally blacked out. That's <laughs> probably a good sign for us from a longevity standpoint. Yeah. If we can't remember how many that's right. there people we go. participated in, that's yeah. a good deal. Uh, before we get started today, we got actually a, a really interesting episode. Uh, Sarah's going to talk to us about her um, story that she ran not too, too long ago in the magazine. It was the cover story of the magazine about why private equity hasn't had its Me Too movement. Um, before we get to that, have to do some necessary plugs for uh, an upcoming event in San Francisco. It's Emerging Manager Connect. Uh, it's on May 1st at the Marines Memorial Club. Uh, that is in the heart of the Bay Area in San Francisco. Keynotes from David Fan of Tory Cove and Bob Maynard, the uh, CIO of Idaho's public pension system. Should be pretty exciting. And, um, you know, it's opening day today, so if you want to catch a ball game while you're out there, May 1st, the Padres are playing the Giants at AT&T. So um, should be freezing that day since it is May in San Francisco, so really the perfect day for a ball game. Uh, I'm a Pirates fan, so it's hard for me to get excited about today. It's Yeah, as a Giants fan, it's not exactly a fun day either. Bumgarner's out, Smarge is out, Melancone's out, our season's screwed. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's going to be a long year. I'm looking at 2019 already. But that's way off topic. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Let's get to... I don't have a whole lot of knowledge to drop there. <laughs> you are a softball player, though, right? I was a softball player. Oh, okay. Still. 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 Are you in a, what is it, Zog? I'm in the league out in, Willi- in Brooklyn, in okay. Williamsburg. Yeah, the pickles were pretty good. The pickles, that's yeah. a great name. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a rough transition, no matter how I <laughs> go to it. But um, you ran a, a really tremendous story not too long ago in Buyouts Magazine about private equity and the Me Too movement, and why the industry hasn't had the um, its moment. Uh, which other media industries and other uh, financial industries even at this point have have started to see. Um, What are some of the findings that you found with with your Mm -hmm. sources? Mm -hmm. And I still think that that is a question that is a little bit unanswered, but Mm -hmm. definitely. As to why it hasn't come out yet in PE Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, there, there are a couple of things people point to. One is just that the VC community and the PE community are very, very different cultures. Mm-hmm. And they are both male-dominated. Um, but once, I mean, if you start by just looking at, you know, the different industries and how they function, PE, historically, is it's more traditional, it's more buttoned up, it's more institutionalized. And there's simple things like, you know, meetings are more likely to take place in a corporate boardroom, whereas a startup pitching to, you know, a VC might be over beers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the way some women I spoke to or even men is that there's simply more opportunity perhaps for sexual harassment on the VC side, side, just because it is a little less structured in that way. There's also like the, um, what would you call it, almost the inherent uh, imbalance of power between a VC mm-hmm. and an entrepreneur who, who sort of has to come and bow before the VC to try to get money to even make their company proceed mm-hmm. further mm-hmm. You know, down the growth track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's almost like already it's like a built-in um, imba- power imbalance right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's that natural lack of formality, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, there. 
So that's that's one thing, of course, but that that isn't to say that it doesn't happen. I think it's important to note that, I mean, because it is buttoned up, you know, I, from my understanding is that, as in many other industries, NDAs are super, super common. Mm-hmm. So really, at the end of the day, we don't know how much is being settled behind closed doors that, you know, we just don't know about. And mm-hmm. there's also the fact that with the vesting schedule and PE, there's just so much to risk by coming forward if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had heard that if you, you know, from, from different women that if oftentimes, you know, they either, they had heard from other others in the industry, lawyers would recommend that, you know, it's probably just best that you stay quiet. Um, you know, your chances of coming forward and winning a you know, case are very low and you're more, more likely to just be blackballed from the industry. And we saw the one famous case in PE, which was um, Lisa Lee in, uh, I guess, CBC, versus yeah. CBC. Right? Mm-hmm. And she was uh, on the, uh, I think, on the investor relations side mm-hmm. and um, claimed, you know, made various claims. I think, I think more like sexual discrimination as opposed to sort of harassment and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It was more, a little bit more along the lines of sexual discrimination. And she had a really, really good case and really, you know, like physical evidence and things that she could point to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case in a lot of these situations. Uh, it might just be something that happened after hours. You have no, you know, physical evidence of it. But when it's something that maybe comes to you know, salary or lack of advancement or opportunity to advance and um, within the firm, that's very different. A little easier to little, little easier to make that case. Yeah. As opposed to he he said she said. Sexually. Yeah. Yeah. Does uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the big differences between venture capital and private equity is just the institutionalized nature mm-hmm. of private equity. Private equity firms tend to be larger. There might be processes in place if you're looking at any kind of fund above a a nominal size. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that uh, the fact that VC firms, so many startups, are tiny mm-hmm. is, a, is a big part of this? I mean, I, I don't imagine a lot of startups are kind of reaching out to third-party HR mm-hmm. functionaries to, to kind of handle in-house complaints or anything along those lines. I think that is a part of it. And someone I was also talking to said that even the P, smaller PE firms, because there are are a ton of lower middle yeah, market of firms that are, you know, might be just a handful of uh, folks. And I'm sure they don't, they don't have HR. <laughs> no, I'm sure they definitely don't have HR, but yeah. most of those folks probably came out of a big corporate company where uh, at some right. point along the lines they were in a very structured environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they come out of that culture. They just come out of that culture, whereas somebody at a VC, a lot of them just came from a startup themselves or a tech company. Or college. Or college, yeah. I, that was another factor that I thought about, and that I don't know if it's been discussed much, but just maturity. Mm-hmm. Like private equity professionals tend to be older, tend to be, as you said, coming out of mm-hmm. larger institutions and launching firms or joining other large firms. Mm-hmm. A lot of VC f- folks are coming out of their own startups or coming out of a dorm room, mm-hmm. and dorm rooms aren't exactly known for being good incubators for good behavior. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes if that's a significant factor as well. Yeah. I, I do think that um, I've, I've worked at companies here in, in my career, um, sort of, I, I can recall one company that, that was very young, a lot of young reporters, all, all of us in our 20s. And um, it, it was kind of wild. I'm not saying things 
mm-hmm. bad things happen. But I mean, I just remember there, I mean, there was, you know, lots of bar nights, lots of that kind of stuff. And I For think, sure. I think that's just the nature of, I think you're right. I think youth, you know, has something to do mm-hmm. with that, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. And I actually heard from women that, you know, are in more senior positions now that, you know, the view some took was that it's actually become a more difficult environment as they've become more senior. And Mm -hmm. it's harassment less in the sense of maybe sexual harassment or sexual assault, but more harassment in the sense of isolation or, um, okay, they've they've been able to kind of cut through the system and make it senior, but they've they're feeling isolated, they're left out from meetings, or maybe they don't want to go to, you know, like Thursday night after, you know, regular Thursday night Mm -hmm. beer and burgers with the dudes. And that's where some big decisions might end up taking place. And that's the foundation for those decisions. Yeah. And they might hear about it later on. Um, So I think it's, it's just a lot of it comes down to the fact that when there are so few women in the industry, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's really tough. Would you say that's the kind of root cause, the fact that it is still so male-dominated? I think it comes down to that. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure the stats, let me see if I've got them, uh, like a, a little over 9%, uh, this is pre-Quinn. Came, yeah. yeah, they came out with a big, rep, really interesting report late last year. Uh, and it basically said that about 9% of senior positions in private equity are women. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to women and others, they say, in reality, like in all of private equity across industries, mm-hmm. like there's got to be only a handful that are actually running the deals that aren't in an IR position or CFO. Mm-hmm. Like very small number are actually leading deal efforts. Interesting. So if you yeah. look behind the numbers, it might, yeah. it might tell an even worse story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's awful to hear. Well, you, you know, uh, w- one thing that I often hear, in, and not just for this issue, but for, for a lot of issues in private equity, is that, like, change often needs to come from the LP side because mm-hmm. L- LPs are the ones that control the, the purse. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, they have a lot of power in their hands. Um, so wh- have you, did you hear anything along those lines about, like, LPs sort of trying to get to the bottom of maybe – um, a bad culture at a firm or, mm-hmm. like, accusations of sexual harassment or anything like that? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. um, no, almost everyone I spoke with or everyone I talked with said there's very little, if any, pressure from LPs today on, you know, their GPs in in terms of that kind of behavior and in terms of diversity, um, harassment, you know, in their, their questionnaires right now, uh, my understanding, at least those I spoke with, you know, they're not asking questions about this. And I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, I think it comes down to LPs are being rewarded or paid solely on their returns too. Returns, yeah. And they're under pressure. They're also vying to get in the best, greatest funds. And if they're the one LP that is asking, have you set, settled any lawsuits? <laughs> and none of the LP, other LPs are asking about it. You know, they might they might be afraid to do that. Yeah, yeah so, they, so they're if they, a squeaky wheel at that point. Yeah. If they're the activist, then the best firms might not have to deal with them. Yeah. You know, might decide, oh, yeah. never mind. Yeah, this, the story that I heard from one LP source was that, I mean, there are a decent number of public LPs who ask about diversity. Yes. Okay. Not so much about harassment, but I, I definitely know of a few... 
LA City does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calpers, I'm pretty sure, does it. Mm-hmm. Um, just to get a sense of, you know, are we investing in a diverse array of managers? But when a GP comes in and says, like, okay, yeah, we don't have any senior partners who are women or minorities, the LP might say, like, okay, you should work on that five years down the road. The GP comes back and just says, like, oh, yeah, we're still working on it. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no real follow-up. Sure. Like, there's, they ask the question, but then there's no follow-up. So, and uh, also just to say how many women are at your firm isn't enough anymore because it's, like, who who has who owns the money? Like, who's... Yeah. Um, yeah, are any of them getting carried? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to sort of bring it back to this Me Too moment, mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially LPs could ask... You know, mm-hmm. do you have settlements mm-hmm. and can you talk about them? Mm-hmm. What happened? What did you do about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's what I've heard sort of, I've talked to a few LPs who would never go on the record and say that, but they said, you know, we certainly could ask about sexual harassment settlements mm-hmm. and, you know. Yeah. Well, hopefully that is the direction we're going. Um, ILPA actually, who I uh, talked to for this story, is in the process of updating their due diligence uh, questionnaire for LPs to ask LPs, or for LPs to ask GPs. And they plan to include questions that uh, specifically address both sexual harassment and um, diversity and anything related in, the, in their plan. What they've said is that they plan to update, update it by mid-year. Interesting. And so... Yeah, I mean, hopefully we're moving in that direction. And, you know, if it is something that becomes systematic and every LP is doing it, and then maybe we really can see change. And that, that would be, that that's ILPA's sort of template due diligence questionnaire? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, well, you yeah. know, in the, in the course of, uh, of our reporting on this, and I, th- I think we've all d- sort of uh, pitched in, but that mm-hmm. definitely it was y- your cover story. But I think several of us have heard stories of bad behavior mm-hmm. that we can't we can't really write about because n- nobody's public about it, nobody's on the record about yeah. it. But you know, to us, who as reporters who often hear secrets and mm-hmm. things like that, we know that things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we know because we hear about them. And, and so that was what was really frustrating and challenging. I feel like for all of us about this piece is that there were things we heard and stories we feel like should be told, but, you know, if you can't back it up and, and people aren't willing to come forward, which I get. You oh, can, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Um, what do you do? Yeah. Um, but what we did see, um, and I actually, in a follow-up last, last week, wrote about uh, a firm called Watermill Group mm. and... They took this. They, to my knowledge, are the first PE firm that has gone public in writing a letter to their own portfolio companies. Um, basically, not saying that any of their portfolio companies, I want to be clear, have a problem, but just trying to get ahead of things and calling on management teams and executives to launch training, sexual harassment trainings within their own companies and. I believe um, even asking, you know, saying things like at the next board meeting, I want updates. I'm going to ask you what you've implemented. I'm going to ask you about your codes of conduct. 
Um, Interesting. So, so taking it down to the portfolio company level. So, right. So here we're talking about the firms themselves, but mm-hmm. actually, uh, a lot of times you think of firms and you forget that they have, you know, they might have 10, 12, 16, 20 portfolio companies. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine a lot of firms have. I mean, I, I would hope a lot of firms have done that, and we we probably just don't know about it. One would hope. I mean, I know no. that f- for a fact that I've talked to a couple of LPs. You know, ESG is a really important thing, environmental, social governance. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely talked to a couple of LPs who consider harassment questions to be within that realm at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that might be a way forward for some LPs to start to exert pressure on their general partners and then for general partners to in turn mimic what, what or not mimic, um, you know, kind of uh, follow up on what Watermill's doing here. Mm-hmm. And you imagine, like, for LPs, that's that's definitely where they, they must see some risk. because Absolutely. Because a lot of times when, when a uh, when a GP gets in trouble, it's because of something that happened at a portfolio company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's a reputational risk I'm talking Absolutely. about. And so, really, I mean, you imagine some sort of scandal erupts at a portfolio company. Yeah. It's going to be on the GP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that GP Yeah, why weren't be, you on top of this? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we've already seen that, and obviously the VC community has had a lot more problems or, or public public, public yeah, problems. They've come out <laughs> yeah, anyway. they've come out. But they've also reacted pretty strongly um, yeah. within the community. There's something I learned, or I think it was uh, in March, there's this whole initiative called Moving Forward, and it's basically a public online directory uh, where I think... 42 VCs signed up initially, and they all put their own codes of conducts on the directory. And I believe it's an open forum where you can constantly update the community on what you're doing in your organization and how to encourage and and change and, and good policy. Hopefully, hopefully that means like real change, because often right. even in like in corporate America, you see, you know companies going out of their way to, to put forth codes of conduct yeah. and all this stuff. And it all sounds good, but, you know, does the culture really change? Yeah. So hopefully that's what we're looking at. I mean, yeah. pardon my French, but look at kind of all the bullshit mascot sloganeering that happens around International Women's Day. Yeah. With huh. corporations coming out with like, you know, oh, we appreciate women, da 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 But if you look at the, you know, raw data, they're still not paying women an equal, equal wage or, you know, fostering a community where women are advancing. So, yeah, I, yeah. hopefully this is this is real change as opposed to a sloganeering. Marketing spin. I yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick pause here for uh, a commercial break, and then afterwards we'll talk to Chris about a uh, story that he's doing about the secondary market. Hello, everybody. Sam here. Just want to take a minute to remind you again to sign up for Emerging Manager Connect West 2018. That's on May 1st at the Marines Memorial Club in San Francisco. We have a few great keynotes there, including David Fan from Tory Cove and Bob Maynard, who heads up Idaho's public retirement system. Also want to tell you about uh, Partner Connect Midwest 2018, which we're starting to finalize the agenda for. That's on June 26th and 27th in Chicago at the Intercontinental. So buy tickets to that now. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, for our next segment, we're going to be talking to Chris about a story that he put out today. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon um, about Hellman and Friedman uh, basically setting up a, it's like a special purpose type vehicle for one company in their sixth fund and it basically gave LPs a chance to liquidate some of their position. Um, can you walk us through what happened, Chris? 
Yeah, and and you know, a big giant caveat right in the beginning is that I, I don't. This deal requires LP approval, and I don't know where that process is. Got it. So okay. I'm not sure if it's gone through yet or not. Um, but really interesting, and I also should say that. Um, this is this is definitely like a broader trend. So mm-hmm. um, in Meisler, I'm trying not to. Uh, obviously, the, the the news hook is the Hellman transaction, but <clears throat> it's definitely broadened out into a secondary market trend. So just try to try to be simple here. Um, Hellman and Friedman have a Fund Six from 2007 mm-hmm. that invested in a uh, company called Kronos, which mm-hmm. is like an HR software management company. Mm-hmm. Um, profitable investment for them. I think they've already made their equity back from from a Reuters story that I read. Got it. I would hope so. It's <clears throat> ten years old. Yeah. So they've done they've uh, done dividend recaps on it and actually sold a minority stake to Blackstone and GIC in 2014. Okay. Hmm. So what's happening now is that they are taking Kronos. And, or they want to take Kronos out of Fund 6 and put it into a special purpose vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will allow existing Fund 6 LPs to cash out of their stakes in Kronos if they want to, mm-hmm. or they could roll into the new vehicle along with the GP. An investor group is set to buy those stakes from existing investors. As I understand it, that investor group includes a <clears throat> newer Hellman fund, Okay. That, that will actually buy, you know, buy more exposure uh, to Kronos. Um, the deal requires LPAC approval from both Fund 6 and what I think is Fund 8 is mm-hmm. the newer fund that's going to buy this, I think. Yeah. That, that could be off, but... That's their current fund, I that's, believe. That's their current fund, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, requires LP approval. I don't know where that process is. Uh, the deal also includes two fairness opinions mm-hmm. because of uh, any sort of potential conflicts of yeah, a newer fund buying from an older fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, basically this, this will give Hellman more time to hold this investment and, and, you know, as a GP says, hopefully maximize the value of the investment. Um, also will give uh, existing LPs in an older fund some proceeds. And so, <clears throat> go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, it actually ties in with another, you know, kind of series of stories that we've all been working on here, and that's about longer duration funds, longer duration investments. This seems like a workaround for the traditional fund model where you could hold on to an asset for a lot longer, give LPs an opportunity to, you know, get some liquidity back, and also, you know, keep a company within your control for some time. Um do you see that kind of those trends kind of su- converging here in this weird secondary market transaction? I do, and and some people I've talked to actually believe that GPs don't even need to do the sort of longer, longer lived funds. Mm-hmm. That if they really want to, you know, deal with certain companies at the end of the fund life, and and they want to extend um, their hold periods on, they just do something like this. Mm-hmm. They don't need to raise a whole fund to do it. They could just they could just continue to do this kind of transaction. I've heard that from from a couple sources. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen because a GP gets to raise a new fund with a new fee stream. Obviously, they're gonna they're gonna take that opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I do think that that's you know this is this is part of that. This is also part of a trend, um, a newer trend that I hear about in the secondary market, which is restructuring or GP led liquidity deals. Only focus on a single asset or, you know, maybe a handful of assets rather than a full fund restructuring. Mm-hmm. So the full fund restructuring is like you, you have an older fund 
and um, you pull investments out of that sort of shell and into a new shell that's recapitalized by a new investor group um, that gives the GP, let's say, another four or five years mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe even resets a fee stream. You know, this doesn't really have to do with that. This is just focused on one asset out mm-hmm. of a fund. Uh, pulling that asset out of the fund into a new vehicle and leaving the fund as is. You know, wh- where Fund 6 is at this point, I'm not, I'm not sure for Hellman and Friedman. Um, you know, I imagine it's gone through some extensions because, because of its age. But this is not a full Fund 6 restructuring. This is just focused on one company. And so I, I've seen deals that involve only two assets. Vector Capital did a deal that I wrote about last year that would that only had two assets in it. Mm-hmm. Um, a software business called Coral and, and a business called WatchGuard, which is a net network security business. There's about $450 million of unrealized value in those two assets. In the restructuring, which, to, which involved two funds, really focused only on those two assets. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of these GP-led deals are really about the underlying assets and, and the value that those assets still have. And so um, I think we're going to see a lot more of these sort of very concentrated asset type type restructurings. This might there. be a dumb question, but do those assets have to be good, profitable businesses for this to work? Yeah, I think they do. Okay. Uh, yeah. In, in order to, to make it attractive to like a new investor group, mm-hmm. I think those assets they probably aren't going to be distressed assets. I guess everything okay. has a price, you know, but... I mean, the, the whole distress side of the business is, is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. There's definitely been distressed um, GPs that try to do fund restructurings, and uh, many times that doesn't get done mm-hmm. um, because of issues with LPs in those funds, et cetera. And so I think, like, in a situation like this with Kronos, you're, you're looking at, like, a high-quality asset mm-hmm. that, I mean, look, at the GP doesn't want to get rid of. The mm-hmm. GP's already made, <laughs> made their money back on it and then some. Mm-hmm. It still wants to hold on to it because they still see a pathway to growth. So I think, yeah, like a quality asset is probably more of a candidate for this type of deal. I was going to say, and not only that, you have to have your, you have to have that kind of political capital with your LPs to pull it off. Yeah. Hellman and Freeman's raising a new fund, probably going to be 15 or $16 billion, which means it's about seven, six or $7 billion more than their last fund. Wow. They, their LPs like them, or at least like them enough to give them a lot of money. So... For them to, if, if LPs weren't to approve this deal, I would be shocked just based on the reception that I've heard to other Helmut Friedman stuff. It's a good point. And, and that, goes to, that goes to another trend that we're seeing in the secondary market, which is high-quality GPs trying to do some, some kind of liquidity process for an older fund. Mm-hmm. High-quality as opposed to distressed GPs mm-hmm. or even mediocre GPs. In the past, a restructuring business has gotten sort of a bad reputation because it really involved, many times involved um, distressed GPs that weren't likely to raise a new fund. And we called those zombie funds at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot lot of the restructuring is dealt with like zombie funds. And Mm -hmm. and that's just a bad story. That might involve like a clawback situation where the GP owes LP money. LPs are mad at the GP. All kinds of challenges around that. LPs are threatening the SEC. Yeah, LPs are going to the SEC probably. Yeah. So, you know, we've moved, not, not that those deals aren't around. Those deals are definitely still around. But... This market has definitely evolved to the point where you get somebody last year like Warburg Pincus that sold a strip of Asian assets out of out of one of its flagship funds just mm-hmm. to sort of lessen the Asian exposure in that mm-hmm. fund. I mean, Warburg is a high-quality you know, GP. Mm-hmm. Now you have Hellman thinking about doing something. 
mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a liquidity uh, process. And so that's another theme that we're seeing is, is that these types of liquidity option processes are becoming just another tool in the private equity tool belt as opposed to a sort of very unique headline grabbing experience. It also becomes a tool for them to launch new new lines of business, excuse me, uh, new lines of business. Warburg, they did that deal, but I think it was tied to their Chinese fund as well, if I remember correctly. Is that a fair... I think they raised that around around the same they time. They raised that around the same time. I, I think it, there might have been a connection there. Okay. Um, I wonder if you could start to see some kind of similar stuff with other big generalist firms like Hellman and Friedman. Um, you know, if actually you ha- are already kind of starting to see that with um, Rourke and their vehicle for the Arby's business, hmm. they you know are raising a new flagship fund, but then alongside that, there's like a billion dollar sidecar that's only going to go towards the Arby's Buffalo Wild Wings deal platform, hmm. and, or that platform rather. Um, so it'll be like a specific investment platform or investment fund to back this one platform. I wonder if you would see Hellman and Freeman do something similar here. That I don't know because Hellman, Hellman is one of those firms that is like really s- sort of dedicated to its discipline, which is like they have wa- they have a flagship fund and they invest. They have a certain investment strategy, mm-hmm. and that's what they've done since um, the eighties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I don't know it, to, to see them come out with a n- new product line would would be amazing. Uh, be a big story for us for sure. I just don't I don't expect to see it. I don't know. I feel Having like said that, who knows? I was going to say, in this market, I feel like anything goes. Right. And, you know, firms stick to their business models until they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the time to try new things, yeah. given the amount of demand mm-hmm. that's but out there. The, the, the difference with Hellman is Hellman al- almost occupies its own space. It's, mm-hmm. its LPs love it. Uh, it will have no problem raising yeah. however much it wants. And um, so I don't, I don't know if it even needs to. You know, mm-hmm. go to a new line of business or anything. You know, I think it's pretty happy and um, just rolling along with what it does, what it's always mm-hmm. done. Unless it wants to go public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll let that one hang. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's we'll, true. We'll, but we'll, we'll address that on the next podcast. Yeah, we will address that on the next <laughs> podcast. Um, I think that just about wraps it up for us for this episode of the PE Hub podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. And if you have a tip, if you want to reach out to us, please drop us a line. You can find all of our articles on pehub.com and all of our events on partnerconnectevents.com. Remember to read read The Morning Wire with the uh, Wire editor, Louisa, and then I do it on Fridays. And also, don't forget, every Thursday... Check out the new Healthcare Wire. <laughs> <laughs> with your host, Sarah Pringle. Yours truly. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. See you later. See ya.